Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Oliver Turnbull, Deputy Vice Chancellor of Teaching and Learning and Professor of Neuropsychology at Prifiscal Bangor University. And it is uh, an absolute honor to have you on today to talk about your book, Mistakes in Clinical Neuropsychology. Dr. Turnbull, thank you. It's a pleasure. I, I should say it's in uh, Wales, that Bangor University is in Wales. It's uh, an important part of our identity that we're not England, but that's another story. Yeah, I, uh, yes, I understand that that is a, a long and complex history. And I did appreciate that I was getting dual, uh, dual language emails. I was like, ah, so. We're, we're, um, the, we're the most bilingual university in the UK. Oh, so uh, I love that. Um, but, but we're here to talk about brains, not, not universities. I <laughs> no, no worries. No, that, like that's fascinating to me, but I have a feeling that that would be an, more than an hour long conversation. So, um, the uh, when we talk about this book, um, why this book? Why why did you feel the need to write this? Yeah, um, uh, the introduction to the book said there there are two reasons for doing it. Well, one um, uh, emotional and one educational. So the education one is the gap. Um, lots of people talk about the importance of making mistakes and reflecting on our mistakes, um, and we we found plenty of people saying how important mistakes were in the literature but no one actually describing their mistakes. Um, no one goes to a conference to say, I'm going to present my best mistake in this talk. Um, <laughs> and, and that speaks to the, the, the other issue, the, the emotional one, which is that the mistakes are embarrassing. Um, you know, they're a sign that you've made an error. Um, that, uh, who wants to talk about you know, uh, your, your failures in public? Um, but, the, but they are very important. So um, for us, um, it, it was important to try to grasp the nettle. So we wrote, um, between the three of us, 14 stories, sort of Oliver Sacks-style stories, if you know those, the man who mistook his wife for a hat uh, type stories, um, about 14 different mistakes. Some of them are in the sort of assessment process of people who have brain injury and some of them in, in, in uh, management and, and rehabilitation. And uh, we hope that um, you know, people can use them as a tool to try to, um, you know, reflect on the nature of their, uh, of their errors. Um, I spoke to a medical colleague of mine who said, no doctor would ever write a book on mistakes. What happens if you get sued? Um, so none of the stories are um, completely about a single patient. Um, and also in many of the stories, the mistake is caught in supervision. So you make the mistake as a trainee, you go to your supervisor, you realize you've been an idiot. The supervisor points the mistake out to you and then the patient is, the patient treatment is not impaired. So, so that's why I'm, I'm hoping I won't be appearing in court. We'll, we'll have to see. So that, that's the reason for the book. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. I did, um, as I got to read a couple of these, I really enjoyed that they were um, 
uh, at least had happy endings, right? Because like you said, it's like reading a horror story. You're like, <laughs> you go out there, you're like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> like you're like watching someone's treatment go off the rails and it's like, oh, okay, we're, we're, we're back. Yeah. So, so, so as someone who's not in, in the discipline, I, I'm very interested to know how you found them. You know, were they readable? Was it a bit too technical in parts or? Oh, they were absolutely fascinating. No, I was actually something I wanted to mention was, um, you know, I was expecting to, have to dig through some technical, maybe Google some stuff, found it very readable and very enjoyable. Like it definitely had, um, yeah, uh, it was really, really fascinating. Um, what's your connection with, I, I noticed, is it, and I'm probably gonna say this wrong, but Rudy Coetzer? Yeah. Um, yeah, I noticed that yeah, they and, wrote and Christian the, Salas. So, so Rudy is my local clinician. Um, uh, he he uh, arrived, I actually uh, trained in South Africa, which is another story, but he arrived and set up the North Wales Brain Injury Service where I live. Um, 25 years ago. Um, so uh, we are about the same age and I'm the sort of um, the university professor guy and he's the, he, he, I mean, he does work for the university some of the time as well, but he's, he's the clinician. So I have a longstanding um, connection with him and he sort of grounds me because I don't see all that many patients. Uh, and then Christian Salas, um, who's a, a generation younger than me, was my PhD student. He came to us on a fully funded scholarship from Chile, actually, um, about 15 years ago. He worked with Rudy and myself. He, he spent time in the brain injury service. And he's gone back, I think, to, you know, to, to be a central part of clinical neuropsychology in Chile. You know, it's not often, you, I want, you know, one of my students has gone to found the, I wouldn't, maybe I'm exaggerating to say found the discipline in a country, but it's, uh, you know, he really will be right there at the start of the uh, of the new field. So it felt very special for me. Rudy's also I, and written, actually, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say Rudy's also written uh, a book on doing clinical neuropsychology in resource constrained circumstances. Um, you know, sort of developing world. Although, frankly, you know, uh, healthcare systems all across the world, even even OECD countries, is, are struggling. So we we have a particular connection with doing things uh, when resources limited. Anyway, sorry, you're going to ask another question. Yeah, well, I, yeah, as you were talking about um, uh, Christian starting uh, in, or at least very in a, in a big fundamental way co uh, contributing to the discipline in Chile, um, I think that's a great time to ask what, uh, th there's a lot of things when you say clinical neuropsychology, you have clinical and neuro uh, in front of psychology. What is, uh, how would you define the discipline? Sure. So let's do neuropsychology first. Um, so um, the mind is the thing that people think that psychologists study, but plainly it has a, a physical instantiation in the brain. Um, uh, we like to view it, maybe now is not the time for a philosophical discussion, but Spinoza is our, our lighthouse on this one. Uh, we believe that <laughs> you can see the mental apparatus, if you want to call it that, from two different perspectives either sort of internally experiencing it as a mind or externally viewing it as a, you know, as a brain. So um, if you liked the hardware software analogy, then neuropsychology is the, the hardware stuff. You know, we, we're interested in knowing how the mind really works. Um, the other little analogy I like to use, because it's a, just to try to get people's heads around the concept, would be about motor cars. You know, everyone is like a car driver in that you own a mind and you, you learn gradually how to drive it. And if you turn the steering wheel and, you know, put the brakes on things happen, that's what, that's what being a mind is like. Um, 
but almost nobody knows how they work. Uh, and how they work is lifting up the bonnet. You've frozen a bit there. L- lifting up the bonnet, and there's a whole ton of machinery that you know turns your steering wheel or your gear thing into a you know into an action. So we're the under the bonnet people. Um, the, the difference, of course, well, there are many differences, but you know, is that we didn't design the thing. So we're trying to work out after the fact how on earth this extraordinarily complicated machine, you know, actually works. So, so that's starting with psychology, the mind, then we're interested in the brain stuff. And then mm-hmm. clinical is the thing that turns it into a, you know, a, a, a field, a field that belongs in the sort of broader family of, of medical sciences. So you, your brain gets injured uh, in all sorts of ways, probably most commonly um, through um, uh, head injury, you know, uh, and uh, motor car accidents, for example, falls, um, or indeed through stroke, um, you know, a, a, any sort of blood supply problem to the brain. Uh, and in later life, of course, dementia is the other big category. So for, um, in that sense, it, it, it has all these related fields around uh, neuropsychology, which, as I point out in the last chapter of the book, you've kind of got to know. You've got to know neuroanatomy. You've got to know clinical uh, neurology. Um, you've got to know something about neuroradiography and, 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 and statistics and, uh, and psychometric assessment. So it's, it's a field that touches on uh, a, a lot of other disciplines. Um, but that also makes it, it, it really fascinating. So it, it appeals to our um, students, often of psychology, who don't like the fuzzier aspect of the, of, of the discipline, but who are more interested in, you know, the kind of hard science stuff. So, uh, and just if I can finish this on, on a personal note, you know, we get to study stuff that's really at the cutting edge of of, of science you know we, we we think we own the biggest problem in, in all of science um you know the the, the problem of consciousness um you know that you, your kidney and livers are, are run using the same kinds of cells that, that are in your brain but somehow at least some parts of your brain create this amazing subjective feeling uh, and um we sort of know um where that happens um, which we call the easy problem of consciousness. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, with the philosophy behind it, but um, the, the easy part was working out where it, where it happens, more or less. Um, the hard problem of consciousness, it, which we just don't know anything about, is why it produces this amazing subjective state. So I, you know, I, I just consider myself really to be very lucky to be working in a field that's, that's about such amazing stuff. Anyway, sorry, I, I don't want yeah. to ramble on here too much. No, that was uh, uh, it was a great answer. Um, the uh, even as you talk about the subjective experience, um, I, I think there's you know you talked about this Oliver Sacks style, uh, and you mentioned a little bit about it in the preface. Um, what is the, what is the value of the emotional and kind of this even a little bit of a first person? approach to uh, doing these case reports. Why is that valuable for students well, and for I mean, other yeah, clinicians? I, I mean, the first person narratives are always more, more engaging. Um, and particularly, you know, when they have an emotional component and being an idiot 14 times in the book, which is more or less what we, what we do, <laughs> you know, is, is, is likely to do that. 
Um, I mean, I, I'm a fan of data plus anecdote, you know, so um, obviously we teach our students using, you know, lots of papers in the scientific literature and so on that are, uh, you know, that, that aren't anecdote based. But there is something about um, lived experience, which is, you know, uh, this is our field, you know, we are, we are, we are mind people, um, as well as, as well as brain people. So, you know, I think trying to get a sense of what um, it, it's like um, to be somebody else's mind is ease, more easily approached from um, that a- anecdote or, or that story perspective, I think, than, than just sort of hard facts. And, and I think that the book does have, you know, examples of, of, of what it's like to be a different sort of mind, which is really what neuropsychology you know, is, um, and, you know, how to extract that material from the patient, um, and sometimes their family members in a way that makes brain sense, you know, that's, um, that's the tricky part, uh, for me, if you don't mind me giving an example, seeing as we're talking about anecdotes, no, please. Um, you know, I, I talk, I think it's in the, the second chapter, the wrong amnesia, um, I'm about to talk about it in Dublin uh, next week, so I, uh, I, I've been thinking about how we talk about it. And at the beginning of that chapter, um, there's a really bossy mother. Um, she's called Mrs. Merton, which is a, a joke, a British television joke, which I'm not so sure. But there is there was a character called Mrs. Merton who had her own television program, and she was a and Mrs. Merton <laughs> describes her son's memory problems. She doesn't give him any space to talk on his own. It's just all about mom. And she describes the memory problems using, with the wrong use of the word amnesia, or at least about things that are not the amnesia that, that we care about as clinicians. You know, um, the, the whole nature of the story, if you remember the second chapter, is that um, he makes mistakes because he's disexecutive, you know, he, um, he doesn't concentrate very well, his mind wanders, he doesn't bring structure to material uh, to remember or, or try to make it relevant for himself. So he's forgetful. Um, and she um, makes, she describes his memory errors in a way that as a naive trainee, you, you think, oh, it's, he, he's amnesic, is he? That, that's the issue, but he's not amnesic, um, which is the whole basis of that mistake. But, but you need to listen like a clinician. You know, she says he's amnesic because he often forgets to choose the right words, you know, which is a thing in neuropsychology. It's called anomia, um, but it's not an amnesia. You know, it's just right. uh, looked at from another perspective. Everything the brain does is, does is memory, arguably. So, you know, for me, uh, the, the fun part of making it an anecdote, a story, was that you could see the clinician making the mistake as a trainee in a way that is more memorable than me standing up in front of my students and saying, you know, you need to, um, to listen like a brain scientist, not, not like someone taking dictation. You know, it's not a, it's a, I was about to reference that line. It's, it's a, yeah, you could easily see how you fall into that. Yeah, and it is. Um, I, I when I was training, I, I started to realize that I I had a sort of visual image of the person's brain while they were talking, and um, that I would sort of see I don't know areas 
light up is the wrong phrase, but, you know, while they were describing particular sorts of errors, you know, oh, I see, that's a visuospatial impairment. So I can see why it would be, you know, what's the right parietal surface looking like and so on. So uh, I, I, it changed the way I listen to people in, in a really quite important way. You know, it's, uh, I, I, I wasn't only listening for the meaning, I was listening for the anatomy, which is, uh, it took me a while to get my head around the mapping, but it, but it is possible to, possible to do. You know, probably people who fix motor cars, just to go back to our earlier analogy, do exactly the same thing. They probably think, oh, this is probably a problem in the distributor or something. I don't know how you, you make the diagnosis. I can't fix cars, but, um, you know, or no one's allowed to these days anyway. But um, it was very much that a process of learning to, um, uh, to, to listen in a different way. We quote, if I can keep talking, Kevin Walsh, um, the, the famous clinician who's um, gnomes. I don't know if you like the, the little gnome reference in the, uh, in the book, sort of areas of knowledge, little anecdotes, um, that, that neuropsychology is a body contact sport, um, that you need to meet people and, and, and see lots of cases in order to try to understand how this, this strange thing works. Um, you know, and, and you need to see lots of different disorders. So um, I, I quite like that. And I'm, uh, I hope you enjoyed the aphorisms as well. Yes, I, I did. And I, even as you're talking about how much you visualize, uh, you referenced it before we started. Um, have you found painting the brain to be helpful both in your teaching, but also in your own process of understanding this? Yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing quite so hard as... Um, or, or focusing you so much as painting something. Um, you know, I run a, a summer school, the Visceral Mind Summer School in, here in Bangor, in which we kidnap um, 30 or so students every year and, and lock them in the halls of residence, and they do nothing but brains for a whole week. Um, you know, uh, it's, really, uh, it's really a wonderful experience. And um, I, I teach them on the principle that uh, if you can't draw it and label it, you don't know it. So uh, the, for me, the worst kind of anatomy teaching, uh, I'm going to pretend that no one ever does this, is in which the, 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 the teacher shows you a brain thing and says, oh, that's the hippocampus or, 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 you know, or that's the corpus callosum. And the student says, great, and nods their head. You learn nothing through that system because a, a five-year-old can, can nod. Um, you know, or, or they're also coloring in books for the brain, you know, in which you buy pictures of the brain and you color them in, but they've done all the hard work for you. You know, a five-year-old can color in. Uh, so I, I teach our students for about a dozen different diagrams, a line drawing of the brain. Here's how you do it. And here's how you label all the 20 or 30 different parts. And then we ask them to turn the piece of paper over and we give them a new blank piece of paper. And we say, okay, draw it. Um, and they're not very good the first time and then they practice <laughs> again and they practice, you know, so it, so painting is a similar sort of thing. You know, it's when you've got that blank piece of paper, um, you've really got to know your stuff. And, uh, I, I mean, the brain paintings I, I, I do, you know, including the ones that are behind my shoulder here. Um, those are not my first attempts. You know, I drew them or painted them again and again and again, and you get it wrong. And then, in fact, most frustratingly, sometimes I'd, I'd get the labeling wrong after I'd gone to all the trouble of painting them, which was a nightmare. <laughs> so, yep. 
I've got a couple of spare mistakes of each of those paintings that I made. It's a really, it's a really, um, I think, important discipline to be able to imagine the spatial relationships between things, and painting really requires you to do that. So I find it very useful. Yeah, even as you're talking about um, uh, learning from failure, really, right? Like it, it's that uh, it's the difficulty that you're asking them to do. Um, uh, and you're talking about like lived experience. Wh what do you think is the value um, from a pedagogical standpoint of working through the emotions of failure? Well, I mean, if we've learned anything from 150 years of memory research, which I think I talk about in the last chapter, um, uh, it's not only about the importance of, of uh, repetition, which is good, um, but that repetition is driven by, by feelings. You know, we were already driven to you know, the reason you, uh, I think I say in the book, the reason you remember your first kiss and not your 1000th kiss with somebody is because, you know, the first one was really powerful, um, you know, and, and you repeated it, you thought it over, you saved the moment, you know, um, uh, whereas things get a bit samey after, a, you know, after a thousand. Um, so that, that's the first thing is that emotion drives repetition, you know, and, uh, and, and also, um, the, the other thing which really helps uh, memory is, is is depth of processing. You know, um, the more you can make you can connect it to other parts of your your knowledge system, um, you know, the better you're going to remember anything. So uh, that process of going over something that you care about um, is really helpful for for that um, depth of processing. You know, it's. You, you, the more you keep on thinking about the thing from a different perspective, the more you, the more it connects to other parts of your mental life, uh, you know, and that's uh, that, that that meaning drives uh, it drives recall. So you know, I don't know which things you've learned in your life, um, but you will have the ones you've successfully learned. You'll have done them, you know, for ten thousand hours or whatever the famous. Uh, number is that people choose. Um, and you'll have thought about it in innumerable ways. You'll have read books about it. You'll have talked to your friends about it. You'll have researched it and looked it up. And, and you know, um, you, you get a, a, a 360 perspective on the, on the thing. And emotion does that for you. You know, it's, uh, it's the engine that gets us out of bed in the morning. So uh, that's more or less what I've spent. I mean, my interest is in emotion neuroscience, what is the brain basis of feelings and, and how we manage them. And, uh, you know, there's a fair amount of that, I think, in the, in, in the book as well. Because, that, you know, one of the things that goes wrong after a brain injury is that you lose the ability to, uh, you know, to, to properly manage your feelings. Uh, and how can we help our patients with that? That's, uh, I'd be happy to talk about that if you want. So, Hi. But you yeah, ask your next question. You, I would love to yeah, no, no. I would love to. I would love to talk uh, more about that. I did want to just touch briefly. You talked about there's there is a lot of talk about how important acknowledging mistakes are, but there's no real literature about the mistakes. Um, do you feel a responsibility, um, and do you have any desires or goals for this book in, in terms of um, the field itself uh, and what you want to encourage? Yeah. Yeah, so we've got the, the forward, uh, who's a, a good friend of ours, um, Jonathan Evans, who runs the program in Glasgow, and he's the president of the International 
um, uh, Neuropsychology Society this year, actually, to, to write a very nice forward. Um, and he talked about you know, making it recommended reading on his program. I'm really hopeful that wherever um, clinical neuropsychologists train, that it'll be uh, something you can recommend for them. But but I also feel, and I've been invited um, to talk to audiences who aren't clinical neuropsychologists, because you know the, the principles of this are not you know the, the, they're not unique to the field. Um, they're about you know how, the importance of growing your knowledge base. Um, you know the importance of tying together. I think no pieces the whole jigsaw is, is is a quote I have in the last chapter. Um, you know the importance of seeing a, a case in the round and not being dazzled, but by one element of of it. You know, um, or, or the importance. I think it's a third recommendation of not judging too fast and taking a bit of time and maybe speaking to other people or even just presenting the case to yourself to see whether it all the ducks line up. You know, those are problems certainly that apply. You know, to every. Um, uh, uh, part of medicine or, or, or the, the fields allied to medicine. And frankly, you know, uh, people are making mistakes in, in every field in the world. So, you know, the, the important thing for me is the attitude we take towards the mistakes. You know, I think that last chapter, which has got a title about appreciating errors, uh, it's, it, it's hard to acknowledge, but if you, um, because we feel so powerfully about the mistakes, it's more likely to help us. It, it, it can be an engine for um, for growth, or you can just choose to avoid it. You know, try to sweep it all under the carpet and ignore our mistakes, so that you can just make the same mistakes over and over again. Which I like. Uh, in the short term, you you want to avoid the mistakes, and that feels better. But in the long term, that it, 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 there's more pain. Um, but even as you're talking about separate fields, I'm reminded of, you know, as you talk about presenting to yourself, there's um, uh, a common tool for uh, computer programmers is uh, they'll, you know, I'm sure they use different sorts of things, but the, it, what they talk about is the rubber ducky and they put a rubber ducky up on their, on their desk. And when they're stuck on a, a programming problem, they talk through it to the rubber ducky. And that's a common way of, uh, of solving it. Um, uh, but I wanted to return because you 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 mentioned you were interested in sharing this. Uh, when you, how do you help patients um, when uh, they are trying to deal with emotional processing problems that come from physical sources? Well, I mean, uh, the, the the issue really for us is this thing we call emotion regulation. You know, how do we manage our feelings? Feelings are really powerful. Um, we all are overwhelmed by them when we're small children because the relevant bits of the brain haven't developed yet which is why children, you know, get so delighted and also terrified or so angry, you know. So the developmental achievement is, be, is finding ways to manage our feelings. And um, it, it's the number one predictor of, um, uh, or, or, a, or a major predictor of, of um, mental health. You know, managing them badly is a huge cause of, uh, of distress for people. So our patients lose the bit of the brain that we use to manage those feelings. So that they're... they're left in that developmentally earlier phase of, um, of being terrified to go into the shops because there's so many things and bright lights and it's just, uh, you know, so, but also because those skills are executive abilities, as we call them, our patients are just executive, you know, they have difficulty 
focusing attention, solving problems, you know, um, error correction and so on. Um, it, we need to be able to find tools that our patients can, can take away with them and, and use. Uh, you know, we, we like, there's a chapter in the book um, called Concrete Patients Need Concrete Therapists. So, you know, our, our patients need simple, practical solutions to, to problems um, and they benefit the most from those. So just to choose an emotion regulation example, um, you know, I, I, if our patients get um, are troubled by going to the shops because it's all too overwhelming that there's too long a list of, um, you know, things for them to get and, and too many people and too many bright lights and so on. Well, you know, do you have to go when everybody else is there? Could you go at, you know, nine o'clock at night when the shops are much quieter? Could you take somebody with you? Could you make sure you've got a, a list and, and you agree beforehand that you would tick it all off, you know, so you don't make any impulsive extra purchases and so on, you know? So um, just, you know, simple strategies seem to really help uh, our, our patients and, and not just on the emotion front. Um, one of the chapters on um, rehab um, called uh, Thinking Inside the Box, uh, which I quite liked as a chapter title, um, uh, is about the memory aid that we teach uh, for our patients. So, so our patients are forgetful, you know, probably because they lose, they don't pay very much attention and they're always losing their keys and forgetting to do things and, and, and so on. A problem that lots of us have, but, but, but our patients especially so. Um, and uh, we recommend a box. Uh, we say they're nice and cheap because the delivery companies bring you a free one every time they uh, they, they drop something <laughs> off at your house. Uh, and uh, we encourage our patients to put the box by the front door. If they're really forgetful, ask them to put it in front of the door so you can't open the door. Uh, and when you come in, you put everything you need in that box, your glasses, your phone, your wallet, you know. Um, and if there's something you need to take with you tomorrow, you don't try to remember to get it tomorrow. You take it now and you put it in the box, you know, so that uh, it just makes it much, it, it simplifies the process of, of, of memory recall for our patients and, the, you know, they, they really benefit from it. So it's, uh, it's these are um, memory uh, solutions to help our patients, which you don't need, you know, aren't too cognitively demanding um, and, and which they can take away with them. And we, we run a little um, uh, intervention program uh, of, of seven or eight sessions uh, for patients with acquired brain injury in, here in North Wales. And um, it, we really focus on those sorts of issues, you know, how to manage your feelings. You know, we give people simple workbooks and, uh, and we've had pretty good outcomes, actually. Yeah, I, and of course, there's also the, the surgery side, which comes up. Um, that was the the which the story mistake was obvious of? but i oh i well i was gonna say the mistake was obvious but uh it's the the first one by dr Coatser on the the bit of knife in the <laughs> left in in the person's skull and it, like i was like definitely would want to know if it was a hammer or or a fist and then you find out it was a knife that had gone into the, like and that's why he couldn't remember and he had and i was like <laughs> yeah, I know. I understand. It's uh, well, yeah. That, that, that's the one on, on on history, isn't it? And the importance yes. of, of, of taking a history. You know, it's a. Um, I, I think Rudy opens that chapter by talking about how easy it is to get overconfident, 
Um, you know, you, you've seen a lot of cases and you think you've got it all done and, 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 and you can cut corners. Um, and, um, but there are reasons that the fundamentals are fundamental. And, um, you know, in, in, in the clinical world, getting a decent history and properly understanding it is, is really critical. You know, um, one of my favorite stories later in the book, um, is famously one in which I wasn't even assessing the patient. Um, I, I don't know if you remember it, but um, it's it's the one in which the patient is uh, it speaks a language that I don't. Um, I can't get anybody else to translate for me. But fortunately, the patient is there with his daughter, um, so I ask her to translate, um, and um, she does perfectly reasonable job. Uh, so I think, uh, and I make um, what, what I think is a perfectly reasonable diagnosis, leave the room to discover that uh, a registrar who's there isn't, it does speak the, 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 the patient's language. So I ask them if they just see the patient for two minutes um, and it becomes clear that the patient, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you the answer to the story, is, is a non-fluent aphasic. So um, they, uh, the aphasias come in two varieties, these language disorders, some of them um, are production uh, errors. So the patients really struggle, especially to produce nouns, so their speech looks very hesitant. I, I could make a diagnosis of that in, in any language in the world because the patient just doesn't produce much stuff. Um, but the other sort, um, the receptive ones, the patients can still produce words, but they're, then they're not coherent anymore. We call it word salad. Um, and so that's what this patient was doing. He was just producing nonsense. Um, I didn't know it was nonsense because I didn't speak the language. Uh, and his daughter was telling me um, what her understanding of the patient's problem was. She wasn't very well connected. Um, so, you know, I, it was a dreadful mistake to make and I, I won't make the same mistake twice. Um, maybe these days, you know, there's a babel fish coming, isn't there, that which will just put your phone out there and it'll do the translation. <laughs> but, but, but back in the day, there wasn't. And, you know, I, it, it, so my original point was that the fundamentals of taking a history, you know, I, uh, neuropsychologists in my field uh, can, or trainees anyway, can be very obsessed with the tests. So you do the test and if you fail, then bingo, you found, you, you found the patient's problem. Um, I, I, the analogy I use, which I think is in the last chapter, uh, is that, to be honest, you, you shouldn't need to test the patient or not very much, you, you reach the conclusion based primarily on the history and, the, and their, their presentation in front of you, and you do the testing to confirm what you probably already knew. Um, so uh, the analogy I have is in, in, in football, um, where everyone enjoys kicking the ball into the back of the net, but the hard work was done moving the ball down the pitch into the penalty area, you know, it's, uh, and that's what the history is, you know, is understanding what on earth the patient's problem is, and then the, the, the tests are, uh, are are more confirmatory. So there are a few errors in the book that, that are of exactly that sort, I suppose. Uh, my background's in philosophical hermeneutics, and one of the things that really stuck out to me as I worked my way through the book was um, how many of, or how much of this is about uh, the interpretational matrix you're, you're constructing, right? And what you allow to uh, what gets in the way. Um, and a lot of it is trying to fix, you know, um, as you say, to, to stop and take a deep breath. Uh, one of my 
favorite examples. And the, uh, this is the kind of stuff that made it funny to me. Um, I pro I would have probably, excuse me, I would probably have been better served by going to the hospital canteen afterwards and thinking the case through while sipping a cup of their undrinkable coffee. Um, <laughs> and it's those little, uh, I've, I have had my share of hospital coffee and, um, I don't, uh, recommend it either. Um, yeah, but it's the equivalent of the duck, isn't it? You know, yes. it's the thing which, um, gives you a bit of time, uh, and, and a bit of perspective. And of course, a fair amount of processing is done, you know, outside of conscious awareness in the first place. So just, if you have the luxury of time, you know, I think there's a real advantage in just even doing something else. I think that that sentence carries on to say, you could talk to the hospital porter about the weather, uh, you know, you it would still processing would still be going on somewhere. I think the analogy I use in that chapter is about, uh, which is, I think no pieces, the whole jigsaw, you know, you need the, the, the history that the patient gives you needs to align with their presentation in the room, um, which needs to align with test performance, you know, and, and um, or what you hear about their behavior, for example, in the workplace. And, and if those don't align, you should be ringing alarm bells and maybe just going back to basics and saying, you know, it, could it be a different disease process? Could it be two pathologies? Could one of your sources of information be inaccurate? You know, could the, I don't know, you know, could the, the family have not told you the right history? Could, well, I mean, another one of our examples um, is um, a, a medical legal case. Uh, Rudy talks about it, um, in which the patient, um, as I think I say in the, the last chapter, in which the patient is either um, not trying to do well or trying to do badly, one of the two, and we probably will never know, you know, uh, and because there is, uh, insufficient effort, as it's now called in, in, in my field, um, is a real thing, especially when it comes to, you know, medical legal claims, there are huge amounts of, of money at play here. Um, and, uh, an important part of being a neuropsychologist is knowing what feigning failure looks like. Um, and if the patient, the mistake that really makes in that chapter is the patient does really badly on the tests, but actually is quite a coherent speaker about things and seems quite well organized and managed to find the, the, the hospital and the hospital room and arrive on time. And yet, you know, s scoring at the sort of 10th percentile on, on things, you know, you, the, 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 the patient's presentation needs to align with the other parts of the jigsaw. And when it doesn't, you should be thinking twice. And maybe that uh, moment with undrinkable hospital coffee would be your moment to, to say, okay, let me just talk at you, you know, does everything match? No, it doesn't actually, you know. So in fact, neuropsychologists also have tests, which I won't tell you how they work because that would be breaking the, the, the magician's code. But, um, you know, tests, if you're trying to do badly, we, we can tell whether it's, uh, you know, intentional or not, because it's, uh, it's not a very common issue, but, you know, I, I have a car accident. I, I could be on a, a million dollar payout and not have to work yeah. for the rest of my life. Um, all I have to do is say that I've, you know, uh, since that car accident, all sorts of things have gone wrong for me. So I, I don't do medical legal work of that sort, but it's, uh, it, it really is a very important issue. So just, uh, kind of as we we talk about this, um, 
these moments, the, the, you know, stopping to drink undrinkable coffee, um, talking to the Porter about the weather. Um, uh, the, the one with the undrinkable coffee was, uh, you moving into new territory and not recognizing it. And so using old, uh, you know, old frameworks on new territory. And so, uh, there's a lot of that where it's like, if we had just sat and thought about it, it would have gone better. And that seems to transcend <laughs> many fields. Um, what, what are some vocal practices that people could uh, use or what's a way of thinking about like these, these kinds of ways of like um, rituals that people can install kind of like the box in the way of the, the door, but something that you could do in your own life where you could help um, take the extra moment uh, to intentionally think through the problem and, and assess at that kind of intuitional whole picture level. Yeah. So in, in our intervention, uh, the, the, the treatment, um, we, we run a traffic light system for our patients. Uh, we say that, you know, I don't want you to get to red levels of anger. We need to work out when you're angry is at orange levels, when it's irritation and frustration and so on. So I think, you know, firstly, it's important to audit what you know and don't know. I'm always um, impressed by people who know their boundaries. You know, I really know that this is true. That, you know, I think I might have read it on Wikipedia. Um, you know, and <laughs> I, I, meet, I, I meet sometimes people who, who seem to think they know everything. Uh, you've even elected presidents who, um, who seem very confident <laughs> in their, uh, in, in their knowledge, you know? So I, I think practicing what the, the boundaries of your, uh, of your, uh, I think we both know the one we're referring to here. Um, yeah. he had a tremendous uh, amount of confidence and, and I, so I, if anything, it would be practicing w what you know and don't know. Um, mm. and, um, and, and if you feel, if you're amber, if you think I might be out of my comfort zone, then uh, that would feel to me would be a good time to pause, you know? So, and we find the traffic light thing actually makes quite a difference to our, our patients. You know, they have to listen a bit more to their body uh, and see what does irritation feel like, you know? And once you, once they realize what it feels like for them to be a bit frustrated or a bit irritated and link it to our little, practical tool, which is mm. to stop, leave the room, right. you know, you're just right. going to get angry. Uh, and you know that when you get angry, you know, you, you might hit somebody. So go out into the garden, have a few deep breaths and, um, you know, in, in, enjoy the flowers. So that would be my, my, my best, um, uh, bit of advice, I would say. So uh, can I say, it's been re really lovely talking to you. The first person I've talked to on the interview with the book, I have one next week, as I said, in Ireland. So, uh, it's been fun. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Turnbull. You have a wonderful day.